Morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for all coming along this morning. Um, okay, thanks for coming on so much numbers as well, which I think indicative of a few things. Uh, it's an interesting topic for a number of people these days. The more times we do these kind of talks on cloud computing, the more people seem to turn up, which means it's on people's agenda. Indicative maybe of the fact that the CPD year ends at the end of October. I don't know that. <laughs> but also <laughs> indicative, hopefully, of uh, we have a, a good guest speaker for you today as well, um, Joanna Cassie from Salesforce, who is here to talk to you about um, their approach to cloud computing, their approach to some of their contract terms, and having prepared to stand up here and talk to you a little bit about her contract terms and her company's approach to the cloud. So our agenda for this morning is to run through a couple of those jargons. We've given you in that booklet about 40 different definitions of some of the key terms. We'll pick up 10 of the most important ones. Um, we'll update you on some of the key legal issues. This isn't, I'm afraid, uh, what are the key legal issues in cloud computing? Because A, we've done that talk already about 18 months ago, and the stuff's online if you need to see that. Uh, B, everyone else is doing that talk. Um, and it, it's not particularly interesting to say that there are IPR rights, there is confidentiality rights. I think what we wanted to do is really update you where the law might have changed in the last 12 months, where you might have been to a previous talk and understood where data protection has gone in the last 12 months, net neutrality and things like that. Then what we wanted to do is have a quick revisit on some of the key differences and similarities between cloud contracts and IT outsourcing and other kinds of agreements, just to understand where actually some supplier concerns come from, where some customer concerns come from. Before we go into looking at some of the example clauses that Salesforce have put forward, comparing those to some things that Microsoft put forward, uh, that Amazon put forward on their Elastic Computing Service, and a couple of other providers as well, just so we can start looking at supplier terms, looking for consistent messages that are coming across, looking for differences, and trying to understand why the technology might impose some of the differences, or it's just commercial reasoning that there's several differences. Um, so we've got a fair bit packed in uh, for the next sort of 45 minutes, then a bit of coffee uh, for 10 minutes, and then coming back and having a look at some of the clauses. Uh, the coffee break as well, there'll be a couple of guys who work in the commercial technology team um, are, I think, what is described in the industry as a bit geeky, and they go along and they build their own websites and do a bit of coding. And, if, and as the topic, as the title of the talk was, everything you wanted to know about current computing, but we're afraid to ask, and apologies to Woody Allen. But if that, that was the title, and you've got a techie query that you wouldn't mind running past someone who probably really does know the IT quite well, then there's a couple of guys who are stood with some badges on at coffee time who are worth talking to. Because they're the kind of guys that we go and talk to when we don't quite understand it. So, myself, Andrew Joint, I'm a partner in the commercial technology team. Rebecca Anderson's the senior associate in the commercial technology team. And we will have a great surprise guest called Joanna Cassie, from, who's a senior group counsel at Salesforce when her train gets in. Um, we'll be speaking to you this morning. And so let's run, start by running through some of the jargon, some of the terminology that are probably very free. Some of you will be very, very, um, uh, very knowledgeable about this already. We've come across these terms all the time. But it's just worth recapping what they mean. So what do we mean when we talk about the internet? Well, the internet, to differentiate it between that and the World Wide Web, the internet, abbreviation of the term internetwork, it's a global system of interconnected computer networks. Um, and you know, within countries generally connected by their own telco system, across continents that's done predominantly by submarine cables, sometimes by satellite, although less satellite traffic accounts for less than uh, by a lot less than five percent of internet traffic. They they speak to each other in a data transmission which conforms to a set of standards, internet protocol suites or IP. And the IP leads itself to the terms we probably are quite knowing we know a lot about, which is the IP address. A lot of people understand that we all get an IP address. And go into what dynamic IP addresses mean, but um, IP addresses is that unique identifier to the machine connected to the internet. 
And websites form part of the world, which form part of the World Wide Web, are one source of traffic which transfers over the internet. And they do that, you know, via HTTP. But that's just one form of traffic which goes via the internet. It's not the only form. And so, what is the World Wide Web? Well, that's a system of intellect, hypertext documents accessed via the internet. Access is typically done by your web browser and can allow access to web pages and allows you to navigate between them via hyperlinks. Um, and actually, obviously, websites then can be used as an interface for what we start thinking about as cloud services, you know, e.g. Hotmail. I get onto my Hotmail, my cloud-based email solution by going via a website, going to the hotmail.com website. But of course, as I said, the World Wide Web being one thing and websites being one thing that's transmitted by the internet, not the only. And that leads us really onto the cloud. And what is the cloud then? People start talking about cloud computing. Well, the cloud is historically, and by historically in, in IT terms, that means about 40 years ago. Historically, it was being discussed and talked about in tel telecoms and telephone networks. And the cloud was used to represent the telephone network, and that's just developed to mean the internet itself. And actually, it's probably most handy when you're reading anything to think about the internet when you look at the word cloud. So what is cloud computing? It usually refers, most people mean it, to the delivery of some sort of IT service over the internet. Okay, cloud bursting then. This is where cloud computing services are only actually used at the point at which um, an organisation's local IT infrastructure reaches a high or near maximum level of utilisation and the extra capacity required to deal or satisfy that demand then bursts onto cloud computing provider systems to deal with this excess workload. So cloud bursting therefore avoids the need for an organisation to have high levels of unused capacity on its IT infrastructure simply to sort of deal with occasional or seasonal high levels of usage or spikes in demand. So cloud computing is often cited as a viable example for retailers for example that experience high levels of demand at Christmas shopping periods online and the advantage being that an organisation only actually pays for extra computing resources when they're actually only needed. Scalability. Cloud computing services can scale capacity up or down as the, as the consumer demands and it's a feature of the underlying cloud computing infrastructure and software platforms. It essentially means that services provided in the cloud are capable of scaling on demand and adding resources or removing resources as needed with minimal input from management and uh, interaction with the service provider. So SaaS, uh, software as a service, um, is a delivery of the software which differs from you know, how we traditionally used to think about it. If I have a piece of software on my home PC, that means I upload that software to sit on the hard drive of my PC. If I do it from work, I would have traditionally have meant that I put the software maybe on the PC sat at my desk, but maybe on a server somewhere in my building. Then the next element came along with application service provision, ASP services. And what ASP said is actually what we'll do is take your piece of software and we'll put it on our servers, but you can connect into it via a decent tele uh, telecom network, a dedicated line into it. We'll run your software, but we'll do it from our servers, maintain it from our servers, and you can access it from your software. Uh, from your PC this way, just via our telecommunications network. And then the last, so what SaaS does is take that one step further. Software as a service says, actually, we will take this play piece of software which you can access and anyone else can access. Now, under the ASP model, that piece of software would be specifically configured to you as your business. It would be exactly as if it's been set up for you as your business on your own PC, but managed wherever my servers are based. Under the SaaS model, 
the SaaS model starts saying, actually, here's a piece of software which is designed to serve you and 100,000 other customers placed in our data centers, and you can access that via the internet. So it's gone from just our normal locally hosted piece of software to an ASP provision to SaaS, software as a service, where you, the customer, sit wherever, and the software sits wherever the supplier wants to put it around the world, and you access it via the cloud, via the internet. Now, there are also some other things. As a service becomes very common, there are then other terminology. There's a lot more detail in the guide about infrastructure as a service, hardware as a service, platform as a service, everything as a service. And what that is saying, basically, is that if I need to use um, a bit of hardware capacity or a piece of server or an operating system, I need to normally would have my Microsoft Windows downloaded and running on my computer. Actually, if all I'd rather do is you run my operating system from your servers wherever that's happening, and I can access that by the internet, then I just need to go and buy a platform as a service solution. The benefits being, generally, that it's cheaper because the maintenance, the update, and the running cost of the servers that host the operating systems and the software are being held by the supplier, not by you as the customer. The downside, and we'll get into the downsides when we start looking at the term, Traditionally, the downside is being that you have to fit what's being required because they're serving you and 100,000 other customers. That the configuration they can do for each of your individual businesses is quite minimal. But that's the, that's the price you pay for the lower cost. And traditionally, I think the last market research was about 12 months old, but it does seem to be a 30 to 40% cost saving to do it this way, but it comes at a cost of less configuration and also the risk of it being internet delivered. Which so what's utility computing? Well, utility computing really is the combination of SaaS, IIS, PaaS, everything as a service. Basically, if I want to get um, software, operating systems, data storage, programming, and I want to get that via the internet, then I want to buy that via a cloud solution as a service. But what utility solutions, so utility computing says is actually, is your requirement that you require Microsoft Windows? Or do you actually have a requirement which says, I need a word processing system which allows me to do X, Y, and Z? Because if actually it's requirements driven, you have processing requirements, storage requirements, output requirements, then we'll provide that on a basis which allows you to turn it on and off, like a utility, like a tap, like your water, like your electricity. And the utility computer says, actually, I'll supply it to you on a metered basis in a manner that I know meets your requirements. But how I choose to do that is obviously up to me. And at the moment, utility computing is around and out there, but actually we're still probably really predominantly in the, in the, in the, in the general marketplace still talking about SaaS solutions. On to virtualization then. This is the use of software on a server to create a number of virtual machines. And each of those machines functions on a single instance or piece of hardware as if it were a separate physical server in its own right. And the use of virtual machines in this way facilitates the more efficient use of hardware. For example, if an organisation has four physical servers, each of which only uses, for example, 25% of their capacity um, and their hardware resources, then these four servers could actually be run as virtual machines on one single piece of hardware, and that's known as virtualization. The underlying software that controls each virtual machine and the allocation of resources within that machine uh, is known as a hypervisor. The delivery of a virtual server over the internet is a type of cloud computing called infrastructure as a service, which Andrew, Andrew has just referred to. 
and the large-scale use of virtualization within an IT supplier's data center is a key factor in determining how cloud computing solutions can be offered on a more efficient and therefore more economical basis than traditional IT solutions. Um, the term virtualization is a bit of a buzzword at the moment and it's also associated with a number of other computing technologies and we've listed some there, so storage virtualizations and network virtualization, for example. Now to what you want. You want the word with cloud in them, of which there are many, and we picked only a few. So what is the public cloud, uh, or the cloud, as you know, but actually it's, the, it's, it's kind of, a, we think it's, we think, and there, you know, lots of people have lost different debate, we think it's kind of the mainstream provision of cloud services from an IT supplier's data center to the general public business community without any differentiation about who you are or where you're coming from. This is my data center. I perform a cloud service. Therefore, come and use my public cloud. And the provision of cloud services um, in a private cloud, private cloud is where an IT supplier um, provides services to a single organization or a closed group of organizations which usually have a shared or common purpose. Unlike a public cloud, um, a private cloud uses dedicated IT infrastructure to provide the services to that customer or group of customer organisations. G Cloud um, is the name given to the UK government's strategy to create a secure government uh, cloud computing infrastructure. And the proposal is to replace the current ad hoc um, network of department hosted systems with a dozen or so data centres uh, which are, are dedicated to the government and secure, therefore. The G-Cloud pla plans um, can support everything from pooled data centres to communal email solutions, um, collaboration tools and also staff editable wikis like Wikipedia, for example, but in a private cloud environment. And part of the plan um, points to the potential of an internal government app store, which would allow recommended tools to be shared and distributed amongst the different government departments. And by 2015, this strategy anticipates that as much as 80% of the government um, departments will be using this G Cloud system. Um, so only a couple more, I promise. Um, the multi-tenancy um, is a principle in software architecture. Uh, Rebecca was talking about virtualization, where you can use one machine to pretend to be to a lot of different people um, servers for each and single one of them to make sure that all the redundant space in that machine is used. And what can happen there, of course, is that one uh, bit of software, you know, taking a Microsoft Word, you can have multiple different versions of it, all on the same system being used by different people. But what uh, multi-tenancy says is actually, let's take that one bit of software and use it by multiple, that one piece of software is being used by multiple different customers at the same time, but they don't know it. They don't know it because they can't see each other's data. And that's basically the fundamental principle of the multi-tenancy structure. But there's one piece of software, one application, being used by a number of different people at the same time. Obviously, that makes it very efficient, and, but they don't know because of the way that their data can't be shared between or seen between each other that that's going on. Cloudware, uh, it's an abbreviation of the term cloud software, and it's software which is designed to run on internet servers as opposed to being designed specifically to run on people's desktops. It's also used to describe software which creates the cloud environment and thereby allowing cloud applications to be deployed in that environment. So next we move on to uh, legal issues update. Um, the law relating to cloud computing services hasn't really changed since our last presentation on cloud computing. 
about 18 months ago. Um, but there have been a number of important developments both at a national and EU level since then, particularly in relation to data protection. So we're going to briefly walk through those developments and also have a quick recap on uh, the laws relating to cloud computing in the context of financial services industry. Looking firstly at data protection then, as you know, users of cloud computing services will need to ensure that their cloud arrangements comply with the Data Protection Act and in particular the eight principles that are set out in Schedule 1 of that Act. We've talked about these principles and the issues that they raise in the context of cloud computing scenarios um, in our last CCF and if you're interested to know any more detail about that, those materials are on our website. But for the purposes of the talk today, the first thing we want to talk about is the ICO's code of practice relating to sharing of personal information online. Um, the ICO published this code of practice and it sets out a model of good practice guides for both public and private sector organisations and covers the sharing of personal information in a number of situations including processing personal data via cloud computing facilities. The ICO, in its guidance, made it clear that organisations using internet-based services like cloud computing services must not relinquish control of the personal data they have collected or expose it to security risks that would not have arisen but for the fact that they are transferring it to an organisation uh, which is a third party. So to overcome this problem, um, the ICA considers that a written contract should be in place to deal with these concerns and confirm that a written contract could include an electronic contract as well. The ICO also stated that it's good practice to encrypt the data before it's transferred to the online services company um, and that would render the data useless to anyone that was trying to hack into it. Uh, and a, another good practice point for customers is to conduct a risk analysis before contracting with the online services company. Um, and suggests various questions that customers can ask of online services providers prior to entering into their contract. For example, whether the company can guarantee the reliability and the training of its staff and also how good their security track record has been. So in summary, the general guidance by the ICO in this area, as it relates to cloud computing anyway, is fairly light and it's simply more of a recap of the rules in relation to international data transfers than anything particularly new. The ICO does, however, expressly recognise the development of internet-based services, which is a good thing, although it hasn't actually issued any firm, concise, well-detailed de de guidance on technical and organisational measures that the ICO considers would be appropriate in relation to the provision of cloud computing services. That's one omission. What I would say also is actually, um, interestingly, I think those of you who might look at some of the data loss notices that the ICO issue fairly regularly, always against local authorities, they're obviously the only ones who own up to it, I think. But the common theme is always they didn't encrypt the data on their laptops. And I think if, if we're taking anything away, I mean, the, the guidance is generally, <coughs> that's, that's one of the principles, that's one of the principles, that's just common sense and one of the principles of the, of the DPA. This isn't. This is, the encryption of data isn't a legal statutory requirement. It's part of their code. But every time someone loses something and ha hasn't encrypted the data, they really want to know the justification and the reason why. And I think really one of the core messages is always encrypt, 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 unless you've got a very good reason why you haven't done that bit personally. The Article 29 Working Party was set up under Article 29 of the EU Data Protection Directive. And it's an independent body which is, advises the EU Commission on data protection and data privacy matters. It's comprised of representatives from national data protection authorities of each EU member state. 
The Working Party recently published a couple of opinions which have touched on cloud computing. The first opinion considered um, the applicability of the terms data controller and data processor to today's cloud computing environments. The, uh, applying these concepts to a practical situation may actually be quite difficult, uh, sorry, might actually be quite straightforward in the early days of the directive, but now that more complex um, technology environments have emerged, like cloud computing, for example, um, it has become a bit more challenging. And it's not necessarily very clear who the data processor and who the data controller is, respectively. So earlier this year, the working party adopted an opinion which specifically addressed the concepts of controller and processor. And as you can see there, they concluded that there's no reason to assume that the current distinction between controllers and processors is not relevant in today's computing environments. Great, <laughs> very helpful. Um, so in a cloud computing environment, it still remains quite unclear and the roles of data controller and data processor still need to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, dependent on the nature of the cloud computing services being provided. Interestingly, in that point, actually, the European Director for Data Protection actually said to the working party, are you sure that it's clear? Do you want to have another think of which? So there are, I think, at the moment, mm -hmm. having another think just about that, although, as Rebecca will talk about, it gets rolled into the DPA update of the directive going on just in a moment. Yeah. The second opinion um, considers the rule determining which EU national law applies to the data processing of companies. The Working Party considers that Article 4, which deals with applicable law, isn't very easy to understand or implement. And as a result, it sets out in its opinion the different elements that need to be considered in order for companies to determine which uh, country's applicable law should apply to the data processing. They provided some illustrations and examples, but unfortunately, the examples are in the context of cloud computing aren't uh, particularly complex ones. So they're fairly, fairly obvious examples that perhaps didn't really need clarifying anyway. Arguably, the opinion would have been more useful to businesses if they've delved deeper into the more complex situations that cloud computing brings about. So the Working Party tried to clarify the situation on applicable law, in its opinion, and gave several recommendations to improve Article 4, which relates to applicable law, particularly in relation to um, it, or in view of the fact that a new data protection uh, framework is going to be proposed later on this year. The most important factor probably coming out of uh, the working party's opinion is the fact that the data protection authorities ask the Commission for a simplification of the applicable law rules. So we'll wait to see what comes out on that later this year, hopefully. Safe Harbour principles in Germany. This is just to mention that um, earlier this year, the German data protection authorities basically passed a resolution which requires German companies to um, apply stricter due diligence requirements when they transfer personal data from Germany across to US companies which are subject to safe harbour principles. So they're sort of saying that safe harbour principles aren't altogether um, um, or, or they don't provide enough due diligence um, in, in terms of safe harbour. So they want German companies, for example, to um, do extra due diligence. For example, they want German companies to um, verify that they have 
um, obtain self-certification and also the date of that certification uh, and various other due diligence requirements. So if you are a service provider based in the US, then you might actually be subject to these additional due diligence requirements. So it's just something to bear in mind, really. I think they, they operate in probably a lot stronger fashion than the ICO does in this country. And they're, they're finally, they had a bit of a survey on the Safe Harbor certified companies and found out, of, I think, about a thousand of them. They found about over 400 weren't meeting the criteria that they self certified saying they were, at which point they said, hmm, we don't quite trust this system, hence the due diligence, hence saying, I think one of the things is um, that if, you, if a company has certifications over seven years old, then you can't rely on that and other things. But I think it's just a good example of a regulator taking a stronger stance of Germany, as they've done on a lot of different data protection matters mm -hmm. than, they have, than we do in the ICO, does in the UK just at the moment. Okay, and then now with regard to what else is happening in Europe, the European Commission has issued a consultation on cloud computing. The European Commission considers that cloud computing has the potential to generate revenues of approximately 35 billion euros in Europe by 2014 and develop into a major new service industry um, that will present great opportunities for European telecoms and technology companies generally. It will also help businesses, especially small to medium enterprises, drastically reduce IT costs and help governments supply services at a much reduced rate. So it's little wonder then that the European Commission is trying to harness the power of cloud computing and is part of its European Digital Agenda strategy, strategy for creating a thriving digital economy by 2020. The European Commission has launched an online public consultation um, which actually closed a couple of weeks ago on the 31st of August and it collected opinions, experiences and requirements relating to the use and provision of cloud computing services from a number of different stakeholders, including businesses, individuals, academics, and public sector bodies. So service providers and users were given an opportunity, therefore, to help shape the legal and technical and economic framework in which cloud services will actually operate in the future. In its consultation, the European Commission sought input from a number of, uh, in a number of different areas, including data protection and liability questions, particularly on cross-border situations, um, the legal and technical barriers to the development of cloud computing generally across Europe and also the potential, what people thought to the potential for and the content of model agreements and service levels for cloud services generally. They also wondered whether public sector clouds and public procurement of cloud services may be able to act as an example for best practice in the private sector and apply the principles across. So the results of the consultation will feed into a European cloud computing strategy which is due to be released at some point in 2012. And there's little doubt, I don't think, that the European Commission sees cloud as playing a major part of Europe's digital economy in the imminent future. Um, it believes that Europe needs to become not only Euro uh, uh, cloud friendly, but it also needs to become cloud active in order to fully realise the benefits of cloud computing services. Lastly, and very quickly, um, we've spoken and written about the legal issues of applying to financial services on a number of occasions now, so we don't plan on spending a huge amount of time discussing them, but we just wanted to provide you with a quick recap on the rules. And by way of a reminder then, um, in the UK, the Financial Services Authority, uh, those entities which are regulated by them are likely to be bound by the provisions of MIFID. 
as part of the implementation of MIFID, the FSA issued the CISC rules, and the rules might not always apply, but if you're in the financial services industry, it might be worth complying with them as a matter of good practice anyway. In particular, CISC rule 8 applies to regulated businesses that outsource an operational function that is business critical, which would include or may apply to cloud computing arrangements. And in complying with that rule, regulated businesses must ensure that confidential information is uh, protected and also that the business itself, its auditors and the FSA can access the data and the premises relating to outsourced services. So the issue here is that the CISC rules aren't necessarily reconcilable with cloud computing services. Personal data in the cloud may be spread across a number of different physical locations in a data centre, and so it may not be always clear where the actual data will be located at any one particular time. And in addition to that, customers may find that they're unable to access a cloud supplier's facility to audit security measures due to the supplier's pre-existing contractual commitments to its other customers. Despite these inherent problems, the uptake of cloud in the financial services industry seems to be growing quite rapidly. However, the Financial Services Authority doesn't seem to be looking into the technology in any particular detail, and in particular how the CISC rules may apply. This is in complete contrast to the position in data protection, where the Information Commissioner's Office, the European Commission and the Article 29 Working Party are all looking into cloud services and how uh, the rules, data protection rules can actually apply in those situations and provide guidance. So FSA has provided a lack of guidance in this area as to how the financial, service, financial services industry can actually comply with the rules and regulations that uh, govern cloud computing services. And that's a bit disappointing actually. I was at uh, a meeting with the FSA, which is as exciting as it sounds, earlier this year, where they had a representative for the FSA talking on, on policy, and he was mentioning sort of anecdotally that, you know, it is obviously, we understand it's important for our, you know, our people who are regulated by us to start getting the efficiencies and the cost savings of cloud computing. We know we have to look at it. But you know there has been silence. There's nothing in terms of official press releases or you know that they're even consulting and thinking about doing it now. Some might say, yeah, that's because they're quite busy on some other stuff, which is uh, fair enough, I suppose. This might not be the most important thing they're doing, <clears throat> but it is a shame in comparison to the other regulators, you know, the ICO at the EU level, that actually they, they haven't really turned to look at this just yet. Um, so a couple more things just to update us on, just on legal issues which sort of start to touch on cloud computing. Um, the Patriot Act, the Uniting and Strengthening America by providing appropriate tools, which is the USA Patriot Act 2001. Um, obviously, you know, quite newsworthy piece of legislation when it came out post 9-11 predominantly. Actually was extended much to the delight of Fox News by President Obama for four years earlier this year. And, and it's one of those acts that says, actually, uh, the US government on application, different departments under different circumstances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, can have the right to intercept communications and the right to access records, data, and other items. Um, those who have been doing outsourcing and outsourcing to US businesses or using data centers or data hosting in US companies, it's been around forever. You know, it's been not forever, but it's been around for five or six years already. It's not something particularly new. <coughs> in terms of law applying, although it has just been renewed to carry on working. Um, of course, what it does as a piece of legislation is to supersede any sort of confidentiality or security provisions you might have agreed as part of a safe harbor accreditation or what you might have under contract. Um, but what's interesting actually for cloud computing users is just the approach of certain suppliers. Um, so there's a, a website called uh, ZDNet, pretty good um, sort of IT news website. 
and they've done an excellent series of articles where they've been pestering on about the effect on cloud computing of the Patriot Act for a fair while. And what they did actually is at the launch of Microsoft 365, the Microsoft sort of really bam, big new entry into the cloud earlier this year, they harangued the UK MD, um, who was there obviously to promote the new company, but they get to promote the new business, but actually kept asking them about this issue. And what they did is got them to admit that yes, of course, the Patriot Act is an issue even when you're dealing with us, Microsoft UK, the UK subsidiary, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, if we have data in the European in, in EEA, and we have our data centers in the EEA, we might, in agreement with you, because of the way that the geo redundancy with us is within our system works, and all that means is we move things around to make sure we utilize stuff the best. Um, because of those kind of principles, we might move data to the US into our US data center at certain times. Now, we do that in agreement, we tell you about it in our terms, we operate safe harbor so we comply with data protection legislation. But of course, when it's in the US, it's governed, and the US agencies and government bodies potentially have the right to come and access it. Of course that happens. But what he also said was, and we're a wholly owned subsidiary of US PLC. And as a wholly owned subsidiary, if the US company decides to ask us for that information, we're going to give it. And so that's what he said. I don't think that's particularly shocking, although the industry was a bit like, really, is that what's really going to go on? Well, of, well, of course it is. And I think what he, really what he was saying is, look, it's a choice of an organization that enters into the cloud to understand that that's going on. You know, and that's one of the costs of coming into cloud computing. And there are, there are a few others, you know, the risk of the internet, some of the non-configuration things that you lose because you're buying a one-to-many service. But one of the things is, well, that data might go into countries that might have legislations that allow them to access your information if it's stored or hosted or even they're able to get their hands on it. Technically, is that too much different than what happens in the UK under Reaper? Under what uh, we were having a chat with Joanna yesterday, actually, and they, they've, I think, identified at least well over 10 different pieces of legislation in the UK give government bodies in the UK the same right to come in and access information held in data centers and stored here. Um, that would probably tell me that across the world, most governments have the rights to come and do that if they really want to. <coughs> the last thing, just on legal updates, net neutrality. Well, the philosophy behind net neutrality is between two great camps, one of which says freedom for all power to the people. The internet should be free. Everyone's treated equally. Um, and the other is those which say, well, hang on a sec. I'm providing the internet. I'm costing me as a business to provide it. I should therefore have some discretion about how I treat traffic that flows across it. So I can profit, so I can stop people who aren't paying anything or doing illegal things, and I can promote people who are happy to pay me a fee. Um, this debate's been going on for a fair while as a, at a philosophical level about net neutrality. Um, actually, it's become slightly more important by a couple of reasons, one of which is the growth of things like iPlayer and YouTube. The amount of video content and large packet content traveling across the internet means it's more and more of a problem. There are larger, bigger bits of material being transferred all the time, and that's causing problems on if you think about it as a motorway, there are more cars on that motorway trying to get down the same piece of road. And that means that the traffic is starting to slow and have problems. The other is that the, the technology, the ability to manage the traffic and shape the traffic, and also to look into bits of information as they travel, deep packet technology, is improving very substantially. And that means that um, businesses are able to also understand what kind of data is being transferred and start putting in filters and rules pretty quickly if they want. Um, it has an obvious impact on cloud computing because cloud computing uses the internet. You require the internet to be able to get information from one place to the other. And that latency, and latency just means delay, that latency, any latency in a system, be how quickly your computer boots up or how quickly you can get information from the US back to your PC is an issue for you, especially when you're comparing it against the service that you might have 
when you previously weren't using a cloud solution, when your server was just the floor below, and how quickly that was to get information. So latency is an issue. Um, you're starting to see some commercial um, propositions coming out, even in the UK. This year, BT operated to launch something called Content Connect. And what Content Connect did is it allowed the ISPs who use BT's networks start charging content providers to promote and high-speed deliver some of their content. They could go to a film distribution video screen, uh, um, streaming company and say, do you want me to prioritize and quickly deliver your movies for a cost? Um, and so it's starting to be there. And so the legislators are starting to have to think, well, do we need to do something about it? In the US, the US position has always been slightly stricter than in the UK because there's slightly less competition in the marketplace in terms of the number of ISPs and telco companies because of just the way the market's developed. Because of that and because of those monopolies, the FCC, the Federal Commission of Communication, have, have tried to take a little bit more of an aggressive policing role. And they tried to prosecute Comcast a couple of years ago. Comcast, who were an ISP, started to stop traffic on BitTorrents, which are quite often used to you know, transport infringing movies, copyright infringing movies. The FCC said that's against the principles of net neutrality against certain codes. Here's a court order, stop doing that. Comcast said, actually, no, you can't. The court order's wrong and won. Um, the FCC then was saying, well, actually, we're going to think about legislation. So Google and Verizon very cleverly and very quickly said, hang on a sec, why don't we self-police and self-regulate? Here's a code of practice. They developed a code of practice, came out uh, late last year about this is what net neutrality means. P.S. It might allow us to make some money out of it. But again, we've written and talked about this in a bit more detail. I've only happily gone for ages about it. But what about in the UK? The UK itself, well, the Ofcom consultant said, do we have a problem here? Concluded, really, we don't. And we don't because we have a greater competition in our marketplace. There are a lot more ISPs and telco companies. If we really, if you're not happy and you think you're getting some sort of um, um, people determining what you can see quicker than others and you want more neutrality, you can go somewhere else very, very quickly. Um, Therefore, and what also happened March of this year, broad, broadband stakeholder groups got together and said, you know what, let's, let's get together with the code of practice and also um, say to the UK, we're going to self-regulate again. You don't need to put regulation in place because we've got together and here's a code we're going to stick to. And at the moment, there isn't really any legislation around it. The EU was considering legislation, also consulted, has also backed away from putting anything in place at the moment, partly because, um, again, they think competition around the EU marketplace is there, but partly also because... Uh, there's a number of telecoms package directives which have asked for openness in terms of the terms and the information they give to customers. What that sort of impliedly says is customers can work out what they're doing if they're not happy they can move. Although actually in Netherlands, in Holland this year, in June, uh, was one of the first examples of a country putting in the EU, putting forward a net neutrality law. What they said in Holland was Skype complained that uh, mobile operators were blocking or charging extra for people to use voice over IP, internet phone call services, by mobile devices, and so the law was changed to say that you can't do that. You can't charge extra or block for someone to use the internet to make voice over IP on your mobile phone. Um, so that was, and I'm going to be a quick run through of the legal issues and say, really, there isn't an awful lot of hard law to update in the last 12 months, but a lot of interesting things coming through, I think. Thanks, Andrew. So in the next couple of uh, slides, we're going to be looking at a comparison between IT outsourcing contracts and cloud computing contracts, where the similarities lie and where the differences lie. So the first slide uh, relates to the similarities and cloud computing contracts share a number of similarities with IT outsourcing contracts as they both focus on performance of the services being provided by the supplier and aim to achieve efficiencies and also reduce costs and they avoid 
or reduce how much of the customer's capital is actually locked up in IT infrastructure so they outsource it to a third party. Contracts are typically function-based uh, and that function is, is was, before it was actually outsourced, provided either in-house or by an alternative th third party service provider. They involve the remote provision of services and they typically are embodied in a contractual structure which uh, is quite detailed and is, is deemed to be a grown-up services contract. So in terms of the differences then, I'm just going to draw out three or four main points here. In relation to customization, in IT outsourcing contracts, highly customized service services are provided and are tailored to the customer's particular requirements and needs. Whereas in a cloud computing contract, a limited amount of customization actually occurs due to the fact that the service provider operates on a one-to-many model. Typically, the cloud provider is rolling out a standard, almost commoditized service to thousands of customers, and therefore it's impossible for the cloud provider to actually customize the service to meet the particular needs of a customer. The customer will need to make sure that its own infrastructure and its systems can plug into and work with the supplier services, which is the other way around in relation to IT outsourcing contracts. In terms of uh, pricing, the pricing payment models in IT outsourcing contracts can be extremely varied and are typically quite complex and include concepts like gain share, for example. A different pricing model applies to cloud computing contracts. In a cloud service agreement, payment models are usually much simpler uh, to calculate and may be charged on a pay-per-use or subscription basis. As a result, consumers don't often get the rights that it would otherwise maybe uh, get in, in other contracts, for example, like termination for convenience, for example. And the last point I wanted to draw out from the table is a difference in the length of the two contracts. So IT outsourcing com contracts are typically fairly long, uh, between about three and five years. They're quite complex and high value deals. In contrast, cloud computing contracts are shorter for shorter terms and are less comple complex and for lower values generally. And because of this, uh, this limits the degree to which uh, suppliers may actually be prepared to customise their standard terms and conditions and negotiate them with the customer. So in light of these differences, approaching a cloud servicing deal in the same way uh, for IT outsourcing contracts as for cloud contracts won't actually work in, in all respects. Um, so. That is, I think, interesting. This table is a couple of years old. Some of you might have actually seen it before. And I think what we do is use it as a bit of a checklist to understand when we approach looking at a cloud computing contract, be it for SaaS, infrastructure as a software, as a heart, um, as a service, etc. I mean, and what should our thought process be? And the only thing that you can see changing, and this is a developing, this is because of a developing market point, is this. Actually, initially, people were really just dipping their toe in the water. Sorry, that's the deal type, the shorter, lower value sort of thing. People were initially really dipping their toe in the market of cloud computing. People are now actually starting to go to longer term, higher value deals as people get more and more comfortable with it. And that has an impact, obviously, if people are spending more money over a longer period of time commitment, has a deal, has an impact predominantly on the commercials, you know, things like liability caps, credits that people are prepared to put against, etc. So what we've done very quickly, run through some of the buzzwords, identify where there's perhaps been a few legal changes or at least change might be imminent, 
and had a look really predominantly thinking why we can look at cloud computing like any other IT contract, but also why we can't look at it like any other IT or outsourcing agreement. So what I wanted to do now is uh, run through a couple of really media, a bit of role play, apologies for that. I'm going to play the role of the customer, and I've got, I've got someone who's not just playing the role, but is the supplier and lawyer. So um, Joanna Cassie's uh, joined us this morning. She's senior corporate counsel at Salesforce. Sure. <laughs> and now Salesforce, uh, one, of, you know, one of the leading proponents and providers of cloud-based solutions. So they're 1.6 billion revenue, something like that, um, US company. Um, and what Joanna's colleague agreed to do is sort of stand here and sort of talk through some of the concerns I might have as a customer and talk through how some of the supplier responses are and why the supplier responds in those kind of ways because of the things we've talked about, the setup of the technology, the setup of the business model, etc. So one of the key things we've talked about already this morning is I coming out as a um, if I was coming up as a customer, my, one of my major worries is about the Data Protection Act. I have concerns because I've got an obligation under Data Protection Act <coughs> under Principle 7. You know, must use appropriate uh, technical and security measures to protect personal data. And under Principle 8, you can't take it outside of the EEA. How are you going to help me with my concerns? <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously, um, hello everybody. Um, Salesforce uh, obviously take their obligations under the Data Protection very seriously, as will as will most other um, cloud computing providers in within Europe. Um, where, where I can, I will try and tell you what other providers do as well as, well as Salesforce. Um, so Salesforce, um, in terms of providing security and IT infrastructure reassurances um, and due to its customers, there are several um, very high-level international security standards one of which is uh, what they call ISO 27001. Um, it's, it's the one that's applicable to um, IT services. We, ha we have um, certification under this uh, international certification to say that we have a certain level of uh, security infrastructure in place that's recognized to a very high standard. As far as I know, apart from being PCI compliant, um, which is, uh, I don't know whether you'll know this, in terms of using credit cards over the internet, um, it is the highest form of security internet standard that's available. So Salesforce uh, can cover that off by being ISO certified. In terms of transferring data outside of the EU, really, really topical. So, uh, Salesforce kind of get around that by being safe harbor certified. We don't have data centers in the UK yet. Um, other suppliers, they might entertain EU model clauses, but with the additional risks that, uh, that have now come from having to have your subcontractors also sign up to the EU model clauses for a US-based company, that's, that's getting quite difficult in terms of um, companies that are being used to actually host the data. It's very unlikely that those US-based hosting companies will, of data center facilities providers, will actually sign up to EU, um, EU model clauses. Okay, so, so another concern I'm going to have as a customer, legitimately, would, in my mind, is what about the internet? What about the risk of the internet? What happens if the internet goes down? Because I can't use your services, the internet goes down. And my IT guy has just told me I need five nines availability. I need 99.999% availability, and that has to happen. That can't be my problem. Well, that's very interesting, Andrew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll take your first question first about the internet. Um, I like to see the internet provisioning in two parts. 
The first part is obviously the internet cables that go into a, a cloud service provider's data centers. Obviously, being a cloud provider, it's completely dependent on the internet. Now, I can confirm from a Salesforce perspective that we have we have cables from pretty much every ISP in the US going into our data centers. So if for any reason one of them goes down, like a Sprint or an AT&T, then there is enough capacity and resilience for another to pick it up. Um, I can't speak on that point about, about other data centers. I would, I would presume from a resilience point of view that that would need to be considered. The other part of the internet question comes to, to you know, customers as users. Um, Obviously, you're going to have to have internet access to use a cloud service that goes without saying, so you're going to have to have some kind of ISP. What most cloud providers won't be responsible for is the downtime of any uh, of your ISP. So if your ISP goes down, then the service is still available to you. It's not that the service has gone down itself, so it, it, it can't really pick up responsibility for that. Um, and we actually class that as a force majeure. Um, I'm welcome to debate on that if you think differently. Um, the SLA point is quite interesting. Um, we've recently been talking to a lot of uh, a kind of other, I guess what you'd call them is, is business leadership groups. Because Salesforce operates on this multi-tenanted architecture, which Andrew explained earlier, um, it's very hard to um, it's very hard to be able to explain that you, each each customer would get a different level of service because. It doesn't. On a multi-tenanted architecture, all customers will get exactly the same level of service at exactly the same time, whether you are one user or whether you're, you've got 10,000 licenses. So our view is that on a multi-tenanted architecture level, if your incentive is for um, re-establishment of service, should the service go down, then with a over 100,000 customers that, that Salesforce now has, the incentive is, is there. Uh, we couldn't have the service go down for a, a prolonged period of time with, with that many people relying on it. The service credit issue it is slightly different. We'll, we'll probably come to that later when we look at some drafting, but um, if you compare uh, the kind of service credits that are available across the industry, Salesforce are really no different to, to others. They're all kind of very on a par. And, and if I'm honest, they're not that great. So I think if, as a customer, if you want to consider an SLA, I think you need to think, really seriously about whether or not that's that's your that's your real solution to, to deal with the problems that, that, that you want it to address. So if you want it to address availability or integrity of service, then you'd be better off kind of analysing the, the look and feel of the security documents and the integrity of the service itself. So how about if I um, were thinking about IPR, I'm giving you my data. Everything I give you, I expect to earn, and any changes you might make to that because you choose to chop it up and transport it in different places, I don't expect you to own either. I want to own everything I give you and any amendments to that. Well, that's a very easy one, Andrew. You can keep whatever you put into my okay. service. <laughs> <laughs> How about the fact that I've just been reading through your terms and conditions and know that actually you're, you asked me to indemnify you? Okay, so we... It's not wholly unusual in, in the industry for this to happen, mainly because you as customers retain um, your data controller level, and um, in terms of the data that you want to put into the service, you're retaining 100% control over that. So in terms of infringing any third-party intellectual property rights, um, 
a service provider such as Salesforce wouldn't expect to um, have to meet the responsibilities of either of those things. It's completely reciprocal, and Salesforce um, offer reciprocal indemnities to that effect. And that's not true, by the way, of all suppliers. A lot of suppliers will not offer any indemnity at all. Um, another common one, coming especially from those people dealing in regulated industries, is about their own security standards or policies. You know, so I have been told by my InfoSec guy that I have to have this security policy enforced, and you have to sign up and agree to it, and my policy on you know access to the data. Okay, so again, that comes back to the multi-tenanted nature of the service. With over 100,000 customers, and you know we're relatively small compared to, a, to, to the likes of Microsoft, so um, in, in their position, they're talking a, a lot bigger. Um, we couldn't sign up to 100,000 different security policies applicable to every single customer. I'm sure every, you know, all customers have their own, own requirements. Um, what we try to do is, is be very open about our security levels and, and what we provide as a, as a standard service. Uh, it's all set out in, in nice documents and the customers are invited to have a look at us and make sure that it, it does what they need it to do. Um, we, uh, we expect customers to, to get comfortable with, with that level of, of security of the service that they're buying. Okay, but um, I understand that because of the nature of your business, but what about them giving me a right to audit? And also my regulator requires that I give them a right to come and audit your data centres. Sure, so um, auditing uh, for suppliers is very expensive and very time consuming. Uh, Salesforce now have a team dedicated to allowing its customers to come in and look around its data centres um, and answer uh, relevant questions. Uh, it, within the EU, the, reg, the regulated question is, is is pretty topical, and of course we would we would you know assist our customers to be able to comply with their regulatory obligations. So it's not so much that that that, that would be the problem. Um, we allow audit, but on a very restricted basis, once a year, uh, usual kind of usual business hours and that kind of thing. And so at the last one, and then we'll have a quick web copy, but also. Um, Rebecca was talking earlier about the CIS rules saying you must make sure that there's certain things in place. One of them is exit. There's got to be continuity of service and quality of service on exit or termination. Um, so I need to have some exit requirements on you, say, to make sure my service is continuous and maintains a standard even if I terminate. Okay. So um, on termination of service, um, you get all of your data back in what we call a .csv format, comma-separated value. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty much native format in, in the way that you put it into the service. You get it all back um, and you can then be free to go and do what you like with it. What is worth adding is, um, and, and I think a lot of suppliers will also offer this, is you can, obviously you're free to download your data and be storing it somewhere else of your own, of your own choosing anyway. Um, and also uh, Salesforce offer a, a kind of weekly or monthly data download. So it allows you to go into the system and, and download it and store it somewhere else if, if you wanted to do that. Um, in terms of assisting a customer to move to another customer, yes, we, we would do that, but it would probably cost. So um, the, I think the key, the key message coming out of, of all of this is that going back to that slide, which Rebecca had up, which is that the differences are this is a one-to-many model. And, and what that means, I think, in terms of for the lawyer's mind, is that where does the point of risk transference happen? Am I able to say, here is my policy, you must warrant you comply with it? No. Because what happens is I get told what they will comply with, and I have to understand where my risk is in comparison to what I want against what's being offered. And that's my job as a customer. And that is the cost, really, to a customer, I think, of operating at the moment under cloud models, because 
that one's many model where you get the efficiencies and the cost savings being offered generally comes at the price of understanding that the risk can't just all be shipped over like it's an outsourcing, because that's the fundamental difference. It isn't an IT outsourcing. I think that's where the legal community is having to catch up a little bit, I think, with um, some of the technological community. So what we're going to do now is we're going to have a quick break for coffee, literally a 10-minute break. Um, Joanna's very kindly going to talk us through a couple of clauses, so three, three clauses which are in your pack. There are three different clauses, one on the indemnity that the customer has to give, one on the remedies in relation to SLA failure, one on the um, interworking with um, third-party applications and some sort of system integration work as well. Let's have a look at um, some clauses. Uh, so Joanna's very kindly sort of promised to by Daniel into the lion's den, stand there in front of her standard terms. Um, while we, again, Rebecca's going to play sort of the customer okay. and say, what about this? No <laughs> <laughs> what, what about this point? What about that point? Um, so there's three separate clauses we've pulled up, and what we'll do is we'll have a look at some of the wording in them, try and talk through where the positions have been got to and why, you know, where as customers we might be thinking, and then compare against things like Microsoft, um, Amazon, and uh, Zoho as well. So the first is um, in customer indemnities. This is the indemnity that the customer is required to give Salesforce um, in relation to customer data, the things that they're putting onto Salesforce's system. So from a customer's perspective, Joanna, <laughs> I think we'd like to know why customers are required to indemnify Salesforce for breaches of applicable law. Okay, so we, we covered this briefly earlier. Obviously, I understand the concept of giving indemnity is, is pretty hard anyway. Um, but what I will say is this is completely reciprocal, um, mostly. Um, and it's really... <laughs> 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 Sorry, just like checking out, just checking out one point. It is mostly mostly reciprocal, um, and it's really because Salesforce have a, have this fear about um, data protection and IP. So we, we have we have had some experience of this. Um, customers are you know continue to be data controllers, so you have to retain your responsibilities in terms of data. If you have a data subject that pursues a claim against Salesforce, um, then for for your breach of your data protection obligations, then we would expect to be indemnified for that. Um, whilst in terms of IP, whilst in terms of um, the fact that you're buying something out of the box, which most um, cloud services tend to be, you are free to customise it as you want to, in terms of what's available to you and the bits that are in the box. So you could change the colours or you could move things around. Um, if you make that look and feel like somebody else's IP and somebody pursues us for breach of IP, then we would expect to be indemnified for that. Have you ever faced those cutting claims from uh, third parties against you for <coughs> someone else to put up on your services? Um, only once in relation to a data subject who claims that um, they, they couldn't work out the privacy of contract in terms of who was responsible for their data. It was short and sweet, obviously, but it, it can happen. Or that shows to us that it can happen. Okay. Um, customers are liable to Salesforce on an indemnity <coughs> basis here, obviously. Um, so why wouldn't sales, uh, Salesforce want to pursue customers for breach of contract? Um, so we've identified two um, identified two areas here which we think should be paid on, uh, you know, on a debt basis. Um, as I said, this is completely reciprocal. If um, th these two things are not really covered in terms of uh, representations or warranties, um, in the rest of the contracts to, to, to give rise to the breach of contract claim. 
um, and, and customers um, are required to indemnify Salesforce for amounts paid under a court-approved settlement, those that are finally awarded. Um, why has it been drafted in that way? Um, this is an interesting point, and actually um, we're probably going to change this for, for our European terms and conditions. Um, unbeknown to me, apparently in the US, um, out-of-court settlements cannot be, cannot be binding settlements until they have a court stamp on them. So this was written by US lawyers in, in the first instance, so um, hence that language. Since that's not uh, applicable in the UK or, or in most cases in Europe, as far as I'm aware, um, we are getting more uh, flexible about taking that out. Okay. And the indemnity is subject to a number of caveats there in one, two, and three. Um, why, why is that? Um, because we appreciate that the indemnity is, is, um, is, is a tall order. So, you know, if, um, if none of these things happen, then you know, we would lose our rights as indemnity. In terms of uh, breach of applicable law, if uh, the customer doesn't have uh, its uh, say on the localization of the data, why should it be liable? Okay, that's a good question. Did everyone hear that? It was about, the question is about, um, in terms of applicable law, um, obviously there's a question at the moment around cloud computing and which laws and which laws of which jurisdiction apply to the data. There are being established some general rules of thumb about that, and it generally will be where the data is being used. So for, for UK customers, then it's going to be applicable laws of the UK. And the reason that that's been drafted that way is so that it covers other legislation that includes intellectual property as well, not just isolated to uh, data protection. So I think it's then interesting to say, so that's a customer that Salesforce are looking for in relation to you know, Salesforce CRM type systems. But what about some of the other people in the cloud computing SaaS marketplace? Um, so, what about a comparison position with Microsoft? Well, Microsoft don't seem to be asking for that customer indemnity within their standard terms. That's interesting. You know, perhaps they feel in terms of the operation of their system that they have more control about the things being uploaded. What about Amazon? Amazon, who offer a bit of a broader service than just the CRM sort of proposed solutions, but actually almost a data hosting and put what you like into the Amazon Elastic Cloud service. But it's interesting because the scope of their indemnity is significantly wider than the one that Salesforce is looking for. And if we start thinking about the solution and the services being offered, maybe there's a reason for that because actually, you know, Joanna was talking about data subject privacy, data privacy is a particular issue and then secondary IPR issues. But of course, if, um, if there's things such as content, actual physical content, which can be got physical but tangible, uh, intangible content can be uploaded to the Amazon system, maybe they feel as a business they need a wider indemnity. And that's why they look and say they need to hold, hold, hold harmless us, our affiliates, and licensors, you or any end users uh, relating to claims concerning you or any end users of the service offering um, breach of the agreement. It's an indemnity basis for a breach of the agreement or violation of applicable law, so considerably wider in scope there because it's talking about any breach of the agreement being on an indemnity basis, for an example. And for example, also talking about some of the caveats, the provided DATs, that Joanna was talking about, well, we have to be notified of the claim and give you conduct of the claim. Well, what do they say? Well, they say, actually, um, you can use counsel of your choosing, subject to our consent. <laughs> you can settle the claim deemed appropriate as you deem appropriate, prior, the provi prior provided that you obtain our prior written consent. 
we may also assume control of the defense of the settlement at any time. So, you know, there's a couple of big providers there, both of them require customer indemnities, but the scope of the indemnities are substantially different. Uh, and, you know, that's where there's a customer hat on, you start thinking, well, I just about understand maybe why there's a, an indemnity requirement. A, it's reciprocal for a start, um, but actually what should that scope be? So one of the, sorry, sorry yeah, of course. Just make one more point yeah. about this, is that this also applies to Amazon, um, not only their EC2, but also their S3s for their yeah. storage. So um, <clears throat> they, they kind of have this umbrella of Amazon Web Services terms and conditions that apply to all of their services. So if you're building an application on their platform, this is the kind of indemnity you're going to be subject to. So that's pretty high. Um, if somebody accesses the data on you know, Salesforce systems, is it apparent who owns that data? Or to an outsider, does it all look like Salesforce data? Or would it be clear that you know, some is from customer A, some is from customer B? Okay, so data within the, within the system is clearly identified as being allocated to individual customers. So in that circumstance, so I work for Thomson Reuters, I can't see how anyone would sue Salesforce, they would come straight to Thomson Reuters, so for me that indemnity really would be an issue. Because they would see that it's Thomson Reuters data, they'd probably think, you know, I don't know, that they, there's probably as much likelihood of them coming straight to us as there is from going to Reuters. I guess our concern is more, let's say you're, it's your customers, and the customers you know, um, um, understand that you're using a CRM system, um, they might pursue us as, as being as holding that data in, in contradiction to data protection legislation, which is which is what happened. That's all. Yeah. Okay. So another clause we thought we'd look at is in relation to remedies, and this is a remedies clause that applies to the um, breach of the SLA, which is being agreed, whatever that SLA might be. Mm-hmm. So here, from a customer's perspective, I think John would like to know who monitors the service, and how does Salesforce sort of refund service credits, are they automatic? Okay, so I'm going to come at this purely from a Salesforce perspective just for a moment. Um, um, Salesforce obviously monitors its its level of of service. We operate it on a very public basis. We operate um, a publicly available website called trust.com slash Salesforce. Um, you, you can basically go in at, at any one time, you can see a, uh, like a sea of, of, it's a graph and it shows all of our pods around the world. Um, pods are the, the actual parts of the data center that hold the data and it will show you how they're broken down, where they're located and whether they're up or down, whether they've suffered an outage. And if they've suffered an outage, what was the cause of that outage and, and how long that outage happened for. Um, normally, it's a sea of nice green dots. Um, every so often, like the, the, the tsunami in Japan, you know, it caused a, a few red ones over in our, our Japanese data center, but not for long. Um, so on the whole, obviously we're monitoring on a daily basis about what's going on. In terms of service credits, we kind of do rely on our customers to come to us and say, well, you know, hang on a minute, um, I was down for 30 seconds yesterday and I'd like some kind of credit in, re- in return. Um, you know, unlike unlike Amazon, we've not really suffered a severe outage as yet for, for the, the systems for our, how do I say? For our SLA process to really understand how it would work in, in reality. But you know, generally speaking, it's our customers who come to us and say, I've got an SLA, um, you had an outage, it was this long, please pay me X amount of money. And what was the last question, sorry? Uh, and how it gets paid. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So because we're a US-based company, and I, I know I can't really speak for how others do it, I don't I don't know that Microsoft recognise their revenue in the same way that we do. Um, obviously, after Sarbanes-Oxley, we will have to recognise our revenue in certain very strict manners. Salesforce do take that that method to quite a high level of strictness. Um, so what we what we try to do is in terms of providing refunds to customers, we use it as a deduction off their next invoice. And if there is no invoice, then we So it's, um, it's not that you can give cash back. Okay, and if Salesforce fails to uh, meet the applicable service levels, um, it would be entitled to a refund of one full day of service subscription fees for each active subscription on the affected service. Yes. So what does active subscription mean in that instance? Okay, so a lot of our customers might get um, favourable pricing to buy let's say for example take a thousand users up front but they might not want to utilize them from day one they might want to utilize them on a phase effect so we, we tend to look at active users users that are actually using the service on that given day not those that are dormant and that can be easily measured by activity okay and you measure service levels quarterly um, often in supply contracts you'll see that they'd be measured monthly um, why is why do you adopt that philosophy? If I'm honest, I think this is just the way that Salesforce have decided to allocate its risk and, and allocate its um, any potential revenue that it would have to pay out as a consequence of service levels. Um, it, it's kind of a it could be a month, it could be a quarter. Um, Salesforce just decided to go with a quarter. Um, I. I have been in situations where, where we've been flexible with that, but it, it means changing the whole concept of the way that the SLA is structured. So there is a, is a, a financial uh, reasoning behind why that is. But you'll see in a moment that that's not the case for all suppliers. So obviously different suppliers um, will allocate this differently. Mm -hmm. From a drafting perspective, it doesn't actually say that you're entitled to the refund. It just says, but receive. So Yeah, I think you were saying a customer kind of, in this case, has to apply for the refund. It won't be automatically sort of put it onto any invoice, etc. It's a customer must apply. I mean, it's really difficult to say until I think it actually one actually happens to us. Um, I mean, we looked very closely at what Amazon decided to do when when they suffered their outage, and I, you know, I think that's an entirely pragmatic view, personally. Um, and I think you know, it's hard to say how we would how we would react if it happened. I mean, thankfully, it hasn't. So. But at the moment, for those for those little outages of, of 30 minutes or whatever, customers generally come to us and ask for it. Sorry, what, what did Amazon do? I, I heard about the answer, but I didn't hear what their solution was. Okay, so um, they had a choice. Um, they could either have restored service within a very short period of time, or um, they went in the end, they went four days with no service, but they were able to recover about 99.999% of the data. So they, the, the data loss was, was minimized by staying out of service for longer. So in taking that commercial view, they decided that irrespective of whether a customer had an SLA or not, they paid every single customer 10,000 euros. So difficult to know how you would react. I mean, <laughs> it's, um, it's it was you know, obviously pretty bad for that and reputational. Um, so, and also for the cloud, I mean, it's, 
the, the media kind of took hold of it and said, you know, is the cloud really secure? Look what can happen to Amazon. So it was important, I think, that Amazon behaved with the right way, and I think personally they behaved in a good way. Jimmy, the commission dealing with your data loss, you also got permission to hear the remedy for outages in terms of your loss of service. What about the same if you have any issues with that? So we don't. Uh, it, it comes up a lot. Um, we generally try to get customers comfortable with the integrity of the service. So Salesforce offer four, four backups, um, uh, two of them are on real time, two of them have a slight delay in them. So you're kind of looking at four, four data centers effectively kind of going down or losing data in, in I would think, you know, if, if Salesforce were in the Amazon, Amazon situation, yeah. and they may come into a, you know, a commercial decision which is, well, reliable for service outage, but not liable for data loss, let's get a feedback up in two hours if we lose yeah, Salesforce yeah. don't deal with data loss as an express item. Yeah. Um, so, <coughs> oh, sorry, yes, it is um, in, in most cases, but. Um, it's arguable whether or not you get into a material breach in that situation. So I think it's a very commercial point as opposed to um, to what would be covered in, in legal terms of conduct. And certainly that's how Amazon dealt with it. That despite Amazon's exclusions, their commercial reality kicked in. So I mean, I, you know, I'm kind of talking not from a legal perspective here. Okay, so service credits are payable for any full or partial hour of service and availability. How do you define availability and unavailability? Um, so further up in this document, which is an SLA document, there is a, um, a what do you call it? Like a, Table? A, a, a fraction that helps you calculate what um, availability is. Availability is offered as a, as a percentage. Um, Salesforce generally offer either 98 or 99%. We don't go above that. Um, and then we have a set of exclusions from that, which include plans, downtime, force majeure, um, sorry, that's it. So, so the interesting thing we talked about earlier, which is who bears the internet risk, one of your force majeure items yes. is unavailability of the internet. <laughs> and so how does you know, that compare some of this service level um, sort of remedies compare? Well, Microsoft, what's their position? Well, they look at measuring it over a month rather than a quarter. That's you know the commercial position they've take, taken. Their level of credit can go up to 100% in relation to applicable month subscription fees. Um, and interestingly, that's the sole and exclusive revenue for any violation of this SLA, which is a consistent theme also with um, self-forces as well in terms of saying, well, this is your remedy for breaches of the SLA itself. How about Amazon? Well, Amazon's clause actually talks about measuring 99.95 for the service year, which obviously allows this slide a highly significant proportion of continual downtime before they start being a breach, actually, when measured over the year. Service credit they can get is equal to 10% of the bill at that point. So, you know, there's the differentials in, in these sort of things about um, the commercial reality, how much money's been pushed at risk. That's, the cu that's a customer supplier debate, really, and how much you spend it to be able to demand something. What are some of the consistent themes? Consistent themes are, oh, well, sole remedy seems to be fairly consistent between two of the big suppliers. Sole remedy, sole remedy. Uh, and also in terms of what we're talking about in terms of unavailability, 
not taking internet risk, Salesforce, Microsoft won't be doing the same, can't show it here, but they um, The last clause we're going to have a very, very quick look at is a clause relating to third-party services. Salesforce operate an app exchange, I think the first app store, well before Apple. <laughs> um, an app exchange where um, customers can buy applications to enhance and add on to the Salesforce solution. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the customer will obviously be buying uh, third-party products and services from your app exchange. So why doesn't Salesforce stand behind those products? So <coughs> when Salesforce set itself up, part of its part of its idea, part of Mark Benioff's idea and um, his business model was to say, okay, well I can provide you with this out-of-the-box CRM, um, you know, customer relationship management tool. Um, but there are so many other things that you can tap onto that. But I'm not an expert in providing those, but there's a, you know, all these other people out there that are developing things that work in CRM um, applications. So um, he set up this, this app exchange, which is a bit like um, your iTunes. Um, so you can go in and you know, if say you want a, um, a coder to go, so you want a financial application, you can click on that and, and then coder to go will contact you directly and then you'll work out how you bring that into your Salesforce solution. So, Whilst we have a certification process to allow um, to build our relationship with these partners to make sure that they are of a certain standard, so that you know we, we have our customers' interests um, um, at the forefront. So um, the certification process is, is necessary, but what we can't do is act as a reseller for those for those app exchange partners. So it's you know for a customer to decide what they want to buy and then to go and contract directly with those uh, those partners. Okay, and does Salesforce's service include any third-party products and services which are embedded in the service or are required in order to use your service? No. Okay. So that, that's kind of a model that probably most of us personally are used to because when we buy something on our smartphone via Android App Store, you know, the App Store via Apple, then that's what Apple say, take it or leave it, it's not our problem. And that's what their terms with the app developers say as well, as well as when you purchase it. And that's, I suppose, I'm, I'm presuming, different to where you're using a system integrator who is saying, we'll take this and we'll make sure it works with your system. I think you're just saying, this is something bolted on, they're saying it works, these are your terms that come with it. And, and again, that's kind of the fundamental difference for why it's not like another type of IT agreement. Okay, so you allow non-Salesforce application providers to access customer data under this provision. So why is that and for what purpose? So, um, it's kind of two parts of this. Um, obviously, if you if, if customers want to integrate um, two applications together, so they want to implement, and let's use Coda to go as an example. So you want to put a financial application within Salesforce or within your CRM system, you might require some kind of professional services to do that. Um, and th these kinds of provisions allow um, the, the consent up front for for us to be able to see customer data and, and move it over to this other application if, if that's required. Um, it was getting too complicated to, to, to not have that, that concern from customers to not move data straight across um, despite the lack of privacy of contracts. Um, so this is really just to say this could happen and if it does then you're, you're allowing us to do it. And the last point here is really um, why are customers required to enter into direct contractual relations with non-Salesforce application providers? We may have touched on this briefly earlier. 
So you, yeah, sure. So customers are required to enter into contractual arrangements directly with non-Salesforce application providers. <coughs> yes, it's, I mean, uh, I think I just, I just mentioned this, that you know, this, this app exchange, a bit like your iTunes, I, we don't act as a reseller for every single app exchange partner. Um, it's not our business model. Um, it's direct sales only. Um, so we encourage customers to, to go away and contract directly with those app exchange partners. Okay. And so, you know, I think what we see here is that here is a positive obligation on the customer to go and make sure that they've got the appropriate contract in place with the third-party app provider to make sure that their data is properly protected. I.e., it's your data customer. You continue to bear data protection compliance, privacy compliance, and all those other compliance risks. You know, we're not sharing and taking that risk across because that's not the model of this service. Uh, Zoho for Google, Zoho offers similar-ish, not quite as good, obviously, but similar-ish CRM <laughs> solution, but. Um, their terms talk about this in a slightly less um, uh, prescriptive way. It basically says is you are responsible for reading and understanding the third-party terms. What it's not saying is you must go and put these contracts in place, but it is basically saying there will be another contract in place that you'll be signing up to and you have to be very happy with it. And again, it's a consistent theme. It's a third-party app. We're not being a system integrated for it. We're basically just providing the opportunity for you to add it and bolt it on. Um, so, uh, before I quickly round up, is there any questions? I'm sorry we kept you a little bit later this morning, but that's been really interesting to join. Is there any questions just generally anyone has? Yes. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Has anyone done it rather than just read about it? Yes. Our whole solution for our customers is uh, integrating multiple software and service providers and providing it out to them. So I'm interested as a supplier, and then our CRM, our accounts, our uh, back office, and terms of IT support is all on the cloud. So we've got one server ourselves, and the rest is all. And how do you find the negotiations each way when you're selling and you're buying? Um, on the buying, you're buying standard stuff, which is you don't need 99.9% availability because you could just do your finance accounts an hour later. We provide a 99.9% availability uh, to our customers, which we have to get backed up from some suppliers that we are, uh, and it's tough. But, but what you're saying is actually there are the standard terms are sort of flowing each way. There isn't so much room to manoeuvre as if you were, you know, buying uh, something. Well, when we're purchasing, there's not so much room. But when we're selling, yeah, uh, customers of, you know, goes back to X, Y, Z, P, L, C, and they say we're the accept our business. <laughs> <laughs> Is anyone else fine? Oh, so there are a lot in the room. Your companies are cloud computing. <laughs> They've just not told you. So not. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of you in this room that are already sucked in. <laughs> any, any other questions? Finally, it's that given the model in cloud used to be very much standard products across our services delivered on a multi-tenancy, multi-many basis. So as a lawyer, do you, have, do you get involved in negotiating many of your contracts, which is pretty much yeah, it's surprising. Um, I think as cloud is becoming more prevalent for businesses, um, that has, it has a direct effect now on how many how many contracts come up for negotiation. But also, I've been at Salesforce um, just less than four years. Um, when I joined, we only had forty thousand customers, um, and people generally were like. Well, I don't really know what I'm buying. I might buy one or two users, see what it's like. Um, and so contracts were rarely negotiated. 
now it's different. I, and we've seen that shift in the last six to nine months, roughly, that now most customers will want some kind of thing. I think more dependent on the cloud service yes. rather than sitting there so yeah, a lot more customers now are wanting, um, you know, they're wanting the penetration testing, they're wanting the audit rights, um, you know, they, they understand that these, this is now outside of their firewall and they want to retain some kind of control over it, and it's just how, about how they go about doing that. Do you think that will ultimately limit how far the price is going, because it's the nature of the service? You know, when you're getting, when, when you ask the company to take the entire business on, on, on a cloud service, then they're going to want you know, pretty good reassurances. And obviously, the whole premise of cloud is here it is, no promises that work beyond certain fairly standard levels. You know, um, it's all over well, there you go, that's what you get for a bargain price. Is that going to sort of limit how far? Do you know, it can go either way. So it will either, either these limitations or restrictions in terms of perception will limit it or perception will change. People will get more comfortable with sending data outside of the EU. People will get more comfortable with sending data outside their own firewalls and exercising control in a different way. I mean, I think, I don't know how far it will go, but we are already seeing a shift in, in mentality to, to obtain better pricing, to you know not have to host all this stuff yourself. So there, there is a, there's a change in mentality. And you know, I guess right now, we don't know how far that will go. But you know, if it does, then I don't think those restrictions will will have that. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up there because of time. If you've got other questions, we'll stay up front. Please do come and ask. Um, hey, thanks very much. Thanks for saying extra as well. But, but yeah, thanks very much for all attending this morning and being part of the debate as well. A special thank you for us, from us to Joanna for coming along, being the nasty supplier in the room, um, but also giving us a good insight and a really honest insight into the approach to terms of culture. So thank you very much for all.